This morning we're going to talk about the servant of the Lord. Someone who had power. All of it. And take a look at what that power is like. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. I've never done it in the six years that I've been here, so I'm a little bit nervous. So it's a little bit different, and that comes later in the sermon. I'm going to whistle the whole sermon. No, I'm not. (laughs) No, that's not it. But uh, I'll let you know when we get there. But first, let me connect our message or the message this morning to last week and pick up the story where we left off. I had many of you come up to me after the service and say, you never told us what happened with Ahaz. So let me finish that story. We last left King Ahaz. You remember King Ahaz. He is the king of Judah in the south. And King Ahaz has a problem because the king of Israel in the north King Pekah formed an alliance with Syria and was pressuring Judah in the south. And Ahaz had a problem because he couldn't withstand that alliance. And Ahaz was looking for the power to defend Judah against the north. And Ahaz looked around, literally I suppose, but figuratively too, and saw Assyria in the east, and thought, now that's power. I'm going to form an alliance with Assyria. Then we'll see what the north and Syria can do to me. And God comes and says, in effect, Ahaz, you're looking for power in all the wrong places. Don't make the deal with Assyria. Trust me, God says to Ahaz. And so I'll give you a sign, and God gives Ahaz the sign of Emmanuel as a basis for Ahaz to place his trust in God. But it's not enough for Ahaz. That's the rest of the story. Instead, he makes the deal with Assyria. And Assyria does come and help. Assyria helps by absolutely wiping out from the face of the earth Ten of the tribes of Israel. And Assyria does the job so thoroughly that no Jew since that day through today can trace their ancestry to any one of those ten tribes. They're gone. How many of you are Star Trek fans? A few of you? then you know the villain in Star Trek known as the Borg? Not Bjorn Borg, the tennis player. I I just dated myself. The Borg is one of the most amazing villains ever created because the Borg's power was it would come into a community, into a culture, into a people group, and Jean-Luc Picard had his hands full. And it would come in, and its method of conquest was assimilation. You will become the Borg. Assyria was a whole lot like the Borg. They would come in, and at the point of a sword, you will become Assyrian, worship our gods, wear our clothes, use our language, all those things that make up a culture. 
You will become Assyrian or you will die. What's your choice? And they would take and they would divide even nuclear families and spread them throughout their in, uh, empire and intermarry them in this method of assimilation. And they would destroy conquered cultures. And that's what happened to those ten tribes of Israel in the north. Because Ahaz was looking for power in all the wrong places. What Ahaz didn't fully appreciate was having invited Assyria in, Ahaz now left Judah even more vulnerable than before. And it's only 20 years later when Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is king of Judah, that Assyria comes to conquer Judah. And Assyria comes and systematically, it's in no hurry. Assyria at this time is that big. It's a world empire at, its, at this time. Assyria comes and systematically starts picking off and starts destroying one Judah town, one Judah village, one Judah city at a time. City after city after city. Brutally torturing and killing those Jews who resisted. And finally, Assyria's general, a man named Sennacherib, sets his sights on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the only city left standing. And Sennacherib comes and surrounds Jerusalem. And its fall seems inevitable. But fortunately, King Ahaz's boy, Hezekiah, is not like his father. Hezekiah is righteous and obedient before God. And since the day Hezekiah had become king, he set about and put into action reforms throughout the country to lead people back to obedience to God. Hezekiah looked for God's power in obedience. And so God miraculously, and I don't use that word lightly, miraculously spares Jerusalem. Secular historians today are still profoundly puzzled at how Jerusalem stood and was not conquered by Assyria who had conquered the rest of the world. They can't explain it. Isaiah tells us what happened. Because of Hezekiah's righteousness, God sends an angel of the Lord. And an angel of the Lord overnight puts to death 185,000 Assyria soldiers. In the next verse in Isaiah, it's one of my favorites in all the Bible, and maybe it won't strike you this way, but it strikes me this way. It's one of my favorites in all the Bible because it has in it that kind of dry sense of Jewish humor. See if you catch it. The next verse is, or the verse I'm talking about goes like this. 
So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. It's a little Jewish humor. I, no wonder, having lost his army. And Hezekiah's faithfulness brought, bought Judah another chance. A chance of another hundred years to maintain her obedience to God. But unfortunately, Judah's faithfulness didn't last long. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was one of the most evil kings in Judah's history. But I tell you what the hundred years did buy. It bought time for the Assyrian Empire to do what all great empires eventually do. It fell. It fell to the Babylonians. And the reason this is important is because the Babylonians' method of conquest, conquest was not the Borg. Babylonians practiced tolerance. They would conquer other countries, but they would allow those countries, even encourage those countries, to maintain their culture and want to learn from their culture. And it made all the difference in the world, even for us today, so Jesus could continue, his line could continue to come through Judah. Babylon came, and in 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell. And true to her method of conquest, Babylon took, took Jews back into exile into Babylon and even invited into the king's palace the best and the brightest so they could tolerate one another and learn from each other. And so we have Daniel and his three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's a story for another time. Isaiah not only prophesied, prophesied to the north with regard to Assyria, but he prophesied to Judah about Babylon. In Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, some 40% of the entire book of Isaiah is addressed to Jews in exile in Babylon. Previous weeks I told you that one of the, a prophet's job is to warn and to comfort. And it's this last section in Isaiah where God sends an extended message of comfort to his exiled people. This last section of Isaiah, it differs from other portions of Isaiah. It differs from Ezekiel. It differs from Jeremiah in that this portion of Isaiah doesn't dwell on and doesn't contain those long passages strongly rebuking Israel for their sin. Instead, its overwhelming theme is one of comfort, intending to bring hope and a renewed confidence to these Jews now in exile. In fact, the section of the book of Isaiah is often called the book of comfort. And so the section appropriately begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. And it's out of this book of comfort that we get some of the most remarkable and most revealing words about Jesus who in Isaiah is called 
the servant of the Lord. When you read Isaiah, you'll find that there are many servants of the Lord mentioned. The people of God, Israel, is called God's servant in Isaiah, but they've become rebellious. Isaiah himself is referred to as God's servant. Believers who are faithful are called God's servant. And even a future king of Persia, King Cyrus, is called a servant of God because he does God's will. It's the definition of a biblical servant of God, someone who does the will of God. So even Cyrus is called servant of the Lord because he does God's will in allowing the Jews to return one day to Jerusalem. And then finally in Isaiah, there is the servant of the Lord, who in Isaiah is anonymous, an anonymous but messianic anointed figure. But what's anonymous in Isaiah, we know. We know who this is. We know who Isaiah is talking about in his book of comfort. The servant of the Lord is Jesus. There is at least four servant songs in Isaiah. Some say five, but they are songs or passages about this last messianic figure, this powerful figure who came to bring comfort. What I'd like to do with the rest of our time really this morning is something a bit different than anything we've done before. That's what I was talking about before. You know, each week I preach sermons, sermons, And while I try my best, so help me God, to base everything I say on the Bible because it is the the source of truth together with the Holy Spirit who affirms and deepens our understanding of God's Word. But my sermons still end up being a lot of uh, my words. (laughs) So I I wanted to spend time and let God's words stand from the text. And I wanted you to get involved in it too. So... We're going to read responsively. Don't be filled with dread. We're going to read responsively God's Word. I mean, I remember growing up, we read responsively. It's like, oh my goodness, it was like the most droning on thing in the world. But I'd like to recapture some of that in the midst with God's people, not droning on and on but recapture some of the joy it is that we get to study and we get to read even aloud God's Word. So I've got an extended portion here that I'd like for us to read responsively. Are you up for that this morning? God's words written centuries before Jesus came about this messianic figure, servant of the Lord. Now the parts that you read will be in green font. Just remember, green means go. And pay attention because it's not always every other. I do that just to make sure you're paying attention. No, I, I do it for other reasons. But it's not always every other. And um, you know what? I'm going to ask for you to stand. Would you stand please together and let's read God's word. And as you hear 
what Isaiah says, what God says through Isaiah about our amazing Messiah, Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Consider what it truly means that Jesus' name is power. What does this servant do with all the power in the world? Here is my servant, whom I uphold. God is speaking. I will put my spirit on him. He will not shout or cry out. It's a poetic way to say that he comes in peace. A bruised reed he will not break. That's a way that in poetry they can say he's going to care for the weak and the oppressed. That beautiful picture of a candle that's just about ready to go out. It's just that last ember. He will not snuff it out. A reed that is bruised, he's not going to cut off. He's come for the oppressed. And you recognize that prophetic foundation of the prophets. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. God speaking to the servant, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. To open eyes that are blind. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And now the Lord says... And to bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. My salvation, the name Yeshua means God's salvation. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. The servant now is singing back. He's speaking. I offered my back to those who beat me. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Therefore, have I set my face like flint. There's a passage in the Gospels. Jesus is just done at uh, Caesarea Philippi. And the Gospel says, as he turns his face for the last time to go to Jerusalem to die, and he set his face like flint. He who vindicates me is near. See, 
Now God is speaking again. My servant will act wisely. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle, this is right out of Exodus 24 when Moses is sprinkling the people with the blood of the covenant, and he will sprinkle many nations. They'll have nothing to say because they'll be so astonished at the level of his suffering and exaltation. He grew up before the Lord like a tender netzer, a tender shoot. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men. Like one from whom men hide their faces. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And who can speak of his descendants? For the transgression of my people he was stricken. In allusion perhaps to the two thieves, and this next line perhaps to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Therefore, God is speaking. I will give him a portion among the great because he poured out his life unto death. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession 
for the transgressors. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Please be seated. And so what did Jesus do with all his power? It's what you would do with all the power, right? You'd go and you find a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. And with all the power in the world, you would take their place. Right? Yeah. Jesus' name is power. But the reason where true power lies is not in might makes right. It's in love. The reason his name is power is he reaches out in self-sacrificial love and trusts that in that humble, submissive, vulnerable condition that God will come through. Ahaz didn't trust it. Hezekiah did. And certainly Jesus did. Will you? Will you believe that love really works? One P.S. Then I need to let you go. Some question whether Jesus is indeed this messianic servant of the Lord figure in Isaiah. There's one story in particular that answers this question. And we find it in the Gospel of Luke where one day we read that Jesus makes the walk from Capernaum to his boyhood town of Nazareth. And he goes there because he's on the schedule to teach in the synagogue. History suggests that schedule, perhaps prepared as long as a year in advance, was custom for Orthodox Jewish towns like Nazareth to have each of their born sons and daughters, grown-ups and children, be assigned a text that they would teach on in synagogue in the next year. And so Jesus walks back to Nazareth because it's his turn to teach. And Luke tells us what the assigned passage was for that day, just happened to be. And it comes from Isaiah 61, who some scholars, and I side with them, feel is a fifth servant of the Lord song. And so Jesus comes into the synagogue in Nazareth, his disciples in tow. And it's got to be packed that day. Because here he comes, this famous rabbi they've all heard about, this one who raised someone from the dead. Can you believe it? And he's here, and he's going to speak today. And the scroll comes out, and the assigned passage for the day 
is read. It comes from Isaiah 61, and it goes like this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the scrolls rolled up and put away, and after the scripture reading, that's when it's time in ancient synagogue practice for the teacher to get up and teach, for the preacher to give his sermon, or in Hebrew, his derashah. Say derashah. And Jesus stands up and he gives his sermon based on that text, which is still hanging in the air in the synagogue. And Jesus gives the shortest sermon, the shortest derashah, perhaps on record in the history of the world, far shorter than mine. It's five Hebrew words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom! In other words, I am the servant of the Lord that Isaiah talked about. He says it as clearly as he possibly could in a Jewish way by referencing the text. There's no question, at least, that Jesus considered himself the servant of the Lord, the one to bring comfort to the poor, to the oppressed, and to the prisoner. And the one who has all the power is the one who is the servant of the Lord. And if you want to follow Jesus, if you are followers of Jesus, in his power, we will need to serve and trust that in that humble, vulnerable, what some in the world might call weak situation of love and trust God with the rest, even if it costs us our lives. Being a disciple of Jesus Being a disciple of Jesus is not for the uncommitted or the fence-sitters. I can think of nothing that requires more courage and more trust that the power of love works and that we can trust God with the rest. Let's pray. Father of heaven, we so often look for power in all the wrong places. 
And in the midst of a passage and a time in history that deals with mighty empires coming and killing, you give us this beautiful book of comfort of the one who will change that and the one in whom we can't even begin today in our relationships changing that. Oh, help us to see the true power of the servant of the Lord, of Jesus. And the one who came to obey you and not follow other idols. And the one who also came to care for the hurting and the poor and those who need. Father, help us to be true followers of Jesus. I ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? And then please, take some time this morning, go on down, say hi to the folks at the ministry fair. They're waiting with their tables. See once where maybe God would have you serve with some of your power. Benediction is the same from last week. It's from Isaiah 9. It's been on my mind because it's an election year and we're all worried about government, right? God gives us a word about government and he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And we can add, in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. See you downstairs at the ministry fair. God bless you all.